Good morning again. <clears throat> Some of you weren't here when we started, so good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, welcome to Woodside Community Church. I am glad you have joined us, and I am glad that I have joined you. Uh, I really, really missed you all. Uh, we have been away now for 12 weeks. That's a long time, so I have to start off again by saying thank you. I will never be able to thank you enough for loving us and caring for us so well and giving us this extended time away to rest, to refresh, to recharge. I especially again want to thank Pastor Mike, who's away, Henry VJ Peter, who's away, who took on a big extra load and burden so that I could be away. It will be difficult to convey how much that means to me and how much of a blessing this time has been to me and my family. Um, but we really did miss you, church, um, our, our church family. You have spent 12 weeks now uh, hearing from 1 Timothy about how one ought to behave in the household of God, meaning that this, not the building, the people, saved by the grace of God, united and bound together by the covenant of church membership, is a family, literally a spiritual family. And as Peter pointed out and closed last week, one of the main markers of a true man of God is his love for the people of God, his love for the family of God. And while we have had a wonderful time away, we have missed you, the people of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We go above and beyond to be obnoxious about speaking to our girls as this, as our family. So I, I look forward greatly to catching up with all of you in the days and the weeks ahead. We look forward to getting back to work with you and for you because, listen, that's the purpose of a sabbatical. Not just to take it easy for a while, but to disconnect for a time from what Paul calls the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the church to refocus on the Lord, to be refreshed and recharged by intentional rest for the purpose of being ready and better equipped to continue to lead and to serve you. And how do I do that? By ministering to you the word of God that reveals to you, mediates to you, and relates to you the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. So please take out your Bibles and turn back finally to the gospel of John. We are going to pick back up in John chapter 4, which can be found on page 888 in the Pew Bible. Page 888, John chapter 4. How to come back after a 12-week absence? That's a good question. Emma suggested that if I preach the greatest sermon I've ever preached, that maybe you'll give me 12 more weeks of sabbatical. <laughs> don't get your hopes up, Emma. And you don't get your hopes up for the greatest sermon I've ever preached. All I can do is take you back to the Word. Where are we? What is the Gospel of John about? Well, don't forget the big idea of the book. John chapter 20, verse 31. John tells us, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's the Gospel of John. It's all about Jesus, His person and work. It's then all about the only right and logical response to Jesus, belief or faith, same thing. And it is about the result of that belief, life. One of the main themes of the book. The fourth verse of the book said, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And life is, well, everything, right? You often hear the phrase, football is life, or basketball is life, or running is life. Some sport attached to is life. So I've never yet heard anyone say hockey is life. I don't think, I don't think anyone said that, Henry. I've never heard that. Uh, what is this phrase conveying? 
Well, it's conveying the idea that said sport is everything. It's all-consuming. The individual's focus on it and commitment to it is comprehensive. Everything that he thinks or does revolves around the sport. He eats in reference to the game. He sleeps in reference to the game. He trains in reference to the game. It's the center. It is everything. It is life. And John has written this book to convince us and compel us to believe that Jesus is life. And then to actually live like it. Like an Olympic athlete who lives his entire life around his sport, John is showing us that a Christian is one who lives her entire life revolving around Jesus and in reference to Jesus. This is what Paul means in Philippians 1.22 when he says that to live is Christ. This is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All of it. Everything that you do. Things as regular and as mundane as eating and drinking. Everything. In other words, life. Do the whole thing to the glory of God. As I laid out and I said at the beginning of Sunday school, this has been one of the kind of the ongoing realizations that God has been really teaching me and kind of really drove home during sabbatical. How little at times my life, in terms of our First Timothy series, matches my doctrine. Or how little my behavior at times matches my belief. All to the glory of God. Christ is life. Rejoice always. Do all things without grumbling, count others more significant than myself. He died for me so that I might no longer live for myself, but for him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I died to the law so that I might live to God. Do I really understand what these verses are saying? Do we? Do we live like it? What do we do? What do you and I need? John chapter 4. What a perfect passage to have to study and preach from on a return from sabbatical. This is the perfect passage to pick back up John with because this passage is also about Jesus as life. And this is the daily, hourly reminder that I need. This is the filter, the glasses that I need before my eyes through which I read everything else, the whole of life. Remembering where we are, John 4 obviously comes after John 3. Look at the end of John 3 briefly. 14 weeks ago, remember that sermon? Uh, we looked at the greatness of Jesus. Twice in 331, we read that Jesus is above all. He is in the place of primacy and priority. He is life. Therefore, there is nothing more important than your response to him. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Oh, Jesus is life. That's what John 4 is about as well. John 4, uh, you probably know it fairly well, the story of the woman at the well seems to be frequently used as a manual on evangelism. Hey, look at how Jesus engages uh, the lost here. Here are 10 tips for how to do evangelism uh, just like Jesus. That's not what this passage is primarily about. There are going to be some important things we can learn about evangelism. We're going to get to that. In two weeks, we're going to look at how the first result of this woman's encounter with Jesus is evangelism. She goes and tells others and brings others to Jesus. She meets the word, she drinks the water, and she witnesses. Jesus then is going to teach his disciples 
on evangelism. But we're not there yet. When we get there, we can come back to these verses as well and see how Jesus operates. But evangelism, witness, is only secondarily what this first part of the passage is about. This passage is not first about how, but what, or better yet, who. It's not a proper methodology for speaking the gospel, but it's the glorious content of the gospel. It's the gift of the gospel. It's about the living water that is offered to us by the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So this passage must first be about and listen, that's how you come back after a 12-week absence, with a return and a re-emphasis on the main thing. Church, this is who we are, and this is what we are and are going to be about always. 1 Corinthians 1, 23, we preach Christ crucified. That's our identity, and that's our mission. And John is here again emphasizing to us the significance and the centrality of Christ to life, to your life. The point is that Christ is life. That's what he wants to communicate, and that's what I want to communicate as I return. That's what I want to believe more and more and live in light of more and more, and that's what I want for you, my church family, as well. I have a one-point sermon this morning. There's just one big idea that I want to communicate to you in my first sermon back. Nothing profound, quite simple. Christ is the life that you are looking for, and it is only in Christ that you will find satisfaction. That's it. That's our point. Ask and he will give. Drink and you will never thirst again. And if that's true, then if you are not finding that life, if you are struggling with satisfaction, if the concept of rejoicing always or never grumbling sounds insane, then it can only be because you, like me, are so prone to forget Christ and to take your gaze off of the one who is life itself. So, Let's be reminded and look at him together for the next few minutes. John chapter 4. I'm going to read it for you. We're going to just do verses 1 through 15 so far. We're going to spend three weeks in the story. I'll explain that in a couple of minutes. But first, for today, let me read for you John chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Christ is life. Pay attention, because this is what God wants to say to you today. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he uh, would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and it, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never 
be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his help one more time as we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that these are the words of life. We thank you that your word is living and active. As we have just read, your word does not and will not return to you void. So we ask now that you would help the preaching of your word, and we ask that you would help the hearing of your word. Father, we pray that you would show us Jesus Christ. We pray that you would arrest our attention with his glory and with his goodness, and that you would continue to convince us that life is found in him and in him alone. Father, I pray that you would use this time to encourage us, use this time to grow us, use this time to grow our affection for your son Jesus. And we ask and we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so our first and only point again today is in your bulletin there. Christ is the life you are looking for. It is in Christ that you will find satisfaction. So let's consider today this text, um, let's consider this idea in terms of the text. What do you thirst for? We're going to get to the context in a moment, but the main idea of this text is clearly found in verses 10 and verse 14. Jesus said again, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. That's the big idea. So be asking yourself, What do you thirst for? Thirst is one of the most intense and imperative of human cravings. Few of us have probably experienced true thirst. We are blessed with an abundance of water. We have perpetual access to it here. It's on tap. There's a fancy filtered bottle dispenser right out this door. Many of you have water sitting by you, probably in those loud metal bottles that someone inevitably knocks over every single service. Uh, We have all kinds of fancy smart waters and pretty bottles, and I made the mistake this summer of stealing a Propel water from my sister-in-law, and now I'm hooked on Propel water. It's so good. Um, Few of us have experienced true thirst, but we all of us recognize the importance of water. I cannot preach a sermon without water. We recognize that water is life. I drink it constantly. I drink over a gallon of water a day, and if I don't get it, I start getting headaches. Melissa and I were blessed with a week out west during sabbatical. I can't wait. Without the kids, too. It was wonderful. I can't wait to tell you more about it. We we drove and we drove and drove and explored the wonders of God's creation. We'd never been out west before. I'd never crossed the Mississippi. I'm 37. Um, And so when we were out there, I wanted to make sure, this sounds strange, but I wanted to make sure we went to Death Valley. Uh, There, I especially wanted to go to the Badwater Basin. It's notorious for being the lowest, driest, hottest place in North America. It's called the Badwater because when you pull up, there's this pool of water there on the edge of this big, massive salt flat. But the story goes that an early explorer got there with his donkey, but the donkey refused to drink the water. It was so salty. It was bad water. When we arrived, the sign out front listed the temperature at 126 degrees. And there were signs everywhere that said, no hiking after 10 a.m. It was too hot to go hiking. So I naturally wanted to go for a run. Um, I wanted to do a long run. My goal was to run through uh, the bad water. I wanted to do something long. Melissa only wanted me to do a mile, so we compromised, and I only did a mile. <laughs> um, she, she won. 
Um, but it, it was really strange. I was breathing such hot, dry air in so deeply, it really almost felt like taking fire into my lungs. And so when I finished, even after only a mile, my desire for water was overwhelming. My thirst demanded to be satisfied. I pounded bottle after bottle of water. I was thirsty, and the water was life. And that's the metaphor that Jesus is masterfully employing in our text. And as he always does, he's picking up on themes that have been running throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. Frequently, water and thirst are used as metaphors, symbols for spiritual thirst. Right? We all have a sense and some sort of understanding of physical thirst, and that's then used to teach us something about heart thirst or spiritual thirst. Right? What do you thirst for? Uh, honestly, be asking and analyzing your heart. What are you seeking? What are you pursuing? What are you living for? What do you believe? Demonstrated by what you think about, talk about, spend your time and your money on. What do you believe will provide you with satisfaction and with life and with joy? Because that's what you're looking for. That's ultimately what we are all after. Blaise Pascal famously put it like this. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others of avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. And so everything that you do, every decision, every word, every everything, is ultimately motivated by what you have determined subconsciously and consciously will bring you life and satisfaction and joy. All men seek happiness. The best non-Christian book I've read this year is titled A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. It's by an author and creative writing teacher at Syracuse, and it consists of great Russian works of short stories and then his analysis of them. Sounds thrilling, doesn't it? No, but it really, it really is. It's one of the best written things I've read in a long time. But towards the end of this massively long book, uh, Saunders, George Saunders writes this, not a believer. He says, it may be possible that when all is said and done, what we're really looking for in a sentence, in a story, in a book, in everything, is joy. It's overflow, ecstasy, intensity. Right? What we're really looking for is joy, happiness, in life, in all that we do. And that's John chapter 4. A woman comes to a well and finds water, finds living water, and finds life. Look at the text and how the story plays out. You're probably pretty familiar with it, but let's, let's run through it and unpack it briefly. Verses 1 through 6 are mostly context, so we won't spend a ton of time there. We start in verse 1 with the implication of growing conflict with the Pharisees. We've already seen them in chapter 1 come to John the witness and question and challenge him. Then in chapter 3, we've just seen some perceived Conflict on the part of John's disciples. Remember, John is decreasing. Jesus is increasing. But because of potential conflict with the Pharisees, because it is not yet his time, Jesus moves on from Jerusalem, verse 3, and he heads north to Galilee. Look at verse 4. There's a lot of discussion and debate about verse 4. It says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Right, so you know your Israel geography, right? You have Jerusalem in Judea in the south. You have Samaria right above it. And then you have Galilee above Samaria. So to get to Galilee, you had to go through Samaria. 
Is that all the had to there refers to? I, I don't think so. This is probably more than a geographical had to. We do actually have writings from Josephus, remember that ancient Jewish historian, that Jews did often travel through Samaria. So you'll often hear people say, look, Jews never traveled through Samaria. Josephus demonstrates that Jews did travel through Samaria. But we also have other evidence that many of the stricter Jews would not travel through it at all. Think of uh, the parable of the, the Good Samaritan, right? You got the Levi, the religious guys, they go, oh, they kind of skirt. It's like when we're handing out tracts out there, some people will cross over and go over and come back. Right? So some people would do that. Many of the more religious authorities uh, would skirt around um, Samaria. But there was a way to do it without traveling through Samaria. So if that's how many people did travel around, up, and then back in, well, then Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria geographically at all. Right? There was a common way around it. So I don't think this is a geographical must. I think this is a divine must. I love the King James translation of this verse. It goes a little above and beyond, uh, but it's fun. It says in the King James, and he must needs go through Samaria. I like how it conveys the, kind of the, the urgency there. This is the fourth time that we've actually seen this same word must. Now, the ESV confuses it and translates it had to. I wish they had just gone with must. Remember chapter 3 verse 7. We saw Jesus say to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Not optional. You must be born again. Chapter 3 verse 14. Also not optional. How can anyone, sinners, be born again? Well, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Remember, that's, that's the cross. And then again in chapter 3, verse 30, we saw John himself say he must increase. Must, must, must. And then here for the fourth time in a short space, we see Jesus must travel through Samaria. Why? Because this woman was there. Because one of his children was there. One of his, his daughters. Because God had decreed before the foundation of the world that this one was his. That she was his child one of his elect, and that she would be saved. And so Jesus must go through Samaria to get her. It's beautiful. Jesus is clearly and compassionately seeking this woman. Again, this woman is not seeking the Lord in any way whatsoever. The Lord is seeking her. And as we'll see next week, as we read further, he knows this woman in all what seems to be her sin and her immorality. We'll get there. He seeks her even though he knows her. And he seeks her knowing her for the purpose of saving her. This is who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about. This is what he does here for her. And this is what he ultimately does for every single one of us who are his. We serve a God who seeks and saves his people. Mark 2.17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We don't seek him. You were not seeking him. The good news of the gospel is that his grace seeks and saves sinners. And so, in the perfect and good providence of God, Jesus goes, verse 5, to this town. We're given some Old Testament context we're in the area, you can go look at it in Genesis 48, 22, that Jacob will give to his son Joseph, where Joseph himself will be buried. There is actually no mention in the Old Testament of Jacob digging a well there. It's just not there, but there's pretty strong 
attestation in tradition that we think we know where this well is. You can go see it today. We think it's the right one. There's a Greek Orthodox church that's built over the site north of Jerusalem a little bit. You can go and, and check this out. But it's, it's hot and it's dry. And so, verse 6. It's a remarkable verse. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 4.6. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Man, don't miss that. In this book that so beautifully reveals to us the true and full divinity of Jesus Christ, it just as equally reveals to us the true and full humanity of Jesus Christ. The one who was life was weary. Oh, think about that. Wrap your mind. This is the glorious mystery of the gospel. God has become man. The word has become flesh. The creator has entered into his creation and become like us to save us. And that's exactly what we see him doing here. Verse 7. Here we go. Story starts to pick up. Context is set. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. It's neat what John does here. Remember, John is just a wonderful writer. Pay attention to the, just the literary masterpiece that is uh, this work. Don't forget to read uh, this in light of what has come before this. Right? The contrast between chapter 3, Nicodemus, and chapter 4, this woman, is great. Same Jesus, same message, same mission. But now, in just a few short verses, Jesus shifts from a Jew to a Samaritan, from a man to a woman, from a person of power and significance to a person of seeming poverty and insignificance, from someone moral to someone seemingly immoral, from someone named to someone that's not even named in this story. And so the point is clear. Chapter 3, there is none too great that they do not need the gospel. Chapter 4, there is none too small that the gospel is not for them. It is for all. It is the only hope for all. Jesus truly is the Savior of the world. I think John is driving that point home. We'll see this in two weeks, but we know the general movement of the gospel from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, uh, Judea and Samaria above it, and then to the end of the earth. We just left Jerusalem in Judea. Now here we are in Samaria. The result will be the salvation of many Samaritans. Look at their confession in chapter 4, verse 42. They will cry out, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Remember, like, without exception, all nations, Jew and Gentile alike. And then most people believe that the official in verses 46 through 54, the following story, is a Gentile. So just in this one short section, we've moved from Jew to Samaritan to Gentile. Right, so what we're talking about here is for everyone, and it applies to everyone. Jesus is life. There is no life found anywhere else for anyone, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, to find life. Anyone and everyone, uh, Christian, American, uh, Japanese person, Olympics are on my brain, uh, Muslim, anyone to find life must be found in Jesus, in Jesus alone. doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. Life is only in Jesus. So... Here comes this unnamed Samaritan woman as a sort of kind of foil and contrast to Nicodemus. She comes in verse 6 at about the sixth hour, right? That would be most likely high noon. And it's hard to know exactly how much to read into this. 
Uh, we're going to learn more about this woman next week, but many commentators will point out that we have historical evidence that early morning was the time that women would go to, to the well to draw water. Right? You could go hiking in Death Valley, but not after 10. Right? You go in the morning before it's too hot. Right? In the desert, you can go draw water in the morning, not after 10, where it's too hot. And we have evidence that it was a social affair. Right? Generally, the women would go, it's like the bathroom, right? the women would go together, everyone, to draw water uh, together. Right? It was an opportunity for fellowship. So the fact that we have this woman alone, the fact that we have her coming at noon, could imply something about her social standing or her lack thereof. Jesus doesn't care. He launches right in. Verse 7, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And then we learn in verse 8 that Jesus is alone, uh, for his disciples have gone into town to get food. So Jesus was likely too weary to cover the extra miles. But most likely, Jesus stopped at the well specifically to meet this woman. And he meets her alone. Again, side note, that's big. Jesus did not follow the Billy Graham rule. Um, right? You guys know the Billy Graham rule, right? You can't meet with women kind of thing. Listen, pastors need to be wise about meeting alone with women. But pastors, who we learned from Mike, 1 Timothy 2.12, notice I dumped that him on Mike and I ran away. 1 Timothy 2.12 tells us that pastors can only be men. And so they need to meet with women. They are the pastor of the women just as much as they are the pastor of the men. So I will happily meet alone with women out in public or at the church if someone else is around. My rule, well, Matthew Shore's rule, right? me versus Billy Graham, uh, my rule is simply that Melissa needs to always know where I am and who I am meeting with. Listen, pastors have to meet with women. Jesus meets with this woman. And this was scandalous on many fronts. We see this in verse 9. She understands this. The Samaritan woman says to him, How is it that you, Jew, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John gives us this little helpful explanatory note. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Why not? History. The Samaritans, as you probably know, were the descendants of the ten northern tribes uh, that were left behind uh, after Assyria conquered and destroyed Israel in 722 B.C. Remember, uh, we have David, and then we have Solomon, United Kingdom. After Solomon, it falls apart, and the kingdom splits. Ten tribes to the north, Israel, two tribes to the south. Um, you have um, Judah and Benjamin. Sorry, thank you. Um, and so in 722, the ten tribes in the north, Israel, falls. Right? Many of the people are taken out of the land, and the Assyrians then resettled much of the land with, with foreigners. And so the Jews that were left behind ended up intermarrying with the transplanted other nations. And the Samaritans are the eventual result. To the Jews, the Samaritans were, they were mutts. I mean, they were, they were half-breeds. They were syncretists, mixing their religion with the religion of outsiders. You can go read all about this in, in 2 Kings 17, if you would like. Samaritans only accepted the first five books of Moses. They only used the Pentateuch and rejected the law, uh, rejected the prophets and, and the wisdom writings. They rejected Jerusalem as the place of worship. And so around 400 B.C., they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. It'll be referenced in the conversation to come in verse 20. About 250 years after they built their own temple, the Jews came in and destroyed that temple. Right, so there's all kinds of animosity and conflict here. Uh, that's the context behind the conversation, and that's the explanation for her shocked reaction. Jews and Samaritans don't mix. So Jesus is breaking down all kinds 
of barriers. Gender barriers, ethnic barriers, religious barriers. And he just gets right to the point. He is the master of ignoring distractions and diversions. We'll talk more about some of this when we talk about evangelism in two weeks. But the big idea and the reason he is there is again in verse 10. She kind of tries to throw him off. He gets to the point. He says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is a story all about a woman and the water. You know, there's another important theme that John uses throughout his book. In chapter 1, we saw John the witness baptizing with water. And then remember, he went on to make a contrast between his baptizing with water and Jesus' coming baptizing with the Spirit. Then in chapter 2, we saw Jesus turn water to wine. In chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And now here in chapter 4, this whole episode revolves around water. And we've talked about this uh, a while ago with baptism. It's just sometimes easy to miss the simplicity of the symbol. What is baptism? Why do we do this thing? What's the point? What's this all about? Water washes. Is that simple? Water washes. I don't know about you, but sometimes a good shower feels like a a rebirth. It's, It's summertime in the city, right? It's hot and humid and we are sweaty and dirty. A shower makes you feel New. In the summer in the city, we have like outside clothes and inside clothes, right? It's just so gross and sweaty and, and smelly. And so you take a shower and you feel wonderful. This is what water does. It washes, it cleanses, it refreshes. Water gives life. Water is life. And so John is drawing your attention to the main and the most important thing that you should be concerned about. Life. Again, not just your physical, material life. As important as that is. We're easily, we we have no problem focusing and emphasizing the importance of our physical life. We get that. John is drawing your attention to your spiritual life. We will read next week in verse 24, Jesus will say that God is spirit. We read this morning from the 1689, chapter 2, which says God is a perfectly pure spirit goes on to say that he alone has immortality and he, uh, he alone is, or that he is eternal. We, created in his image and likeness, are also then eternal. And not in the same way that God is. We begin, he has no beginning. We are dependent, he is entirely independent, he is creator. We are creature, but as souls created in the image of the eternal God, those souls then are eternal. Should you not then give the utmost attention and concern to that life which will be unending and everlasting. We have been obsessed with physical health for the last year and a half now. And again, under, rightly so, understood, I get it. Physical life is important. Protect it. Preserve it. Be careful. Are we concerned at all about spiritual life? This is what Jesus is trying to drive home to this woman that he has come to rescue. We learn more about her in verses 16 through 18. We don't want to over-psychoanalyze the text, but the fact that she has had five husbands... And she can't be that old if she's walking out to get water and carry this heavy jar. So she can't be that old. She's already had five husbands. She's now with a sixth man who is not her husband. Is this not most likely some sort of indication of an insatiable heart thirst that she seeks continually to quench with relationships? And don't we all tend to do this 
with relationships. Some of you who are married, you'll never say this, but some of you probably think that if you could just marry someone else, right? If you could just marry the right person, then you'd be happy. Some of you who are single probably think that if you could just finally find the right person, that then you would be happy. She's on try number six. Doesn't seem like it's satisfied her soul. Is your soul satisfied? Or are you, like the woman, not quite there yet? Hey, she's just not following at all at this point. Verse 11, hey, you don't even have a bucket. How are you going to get the water? Are you even greater than Jacob, the greatest one, the one who gave us this well and the water in it? Again, Jesus won't be diverted or distracted. Verse 13, here's the point. Here's what we've all experienced. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. And that's the whole point of this episode. Nothing will satisfy. Whatever it is that you try and use to quench your heart thirst will fail you. Relationship will not satisfy you. Twelve weeks of sabbatical will not ultimately uh, satisfy you. You think, if I could just get twelve weeks off, then I'd be happy. I would love for you to get twelve weeks off. It won't make you happy. It won't satisfy you as God can. Some of you think that that promotion or that new job or money or ease or entertainment or whatever it is, you think that there's this thing that if you get it, you'll be finally satisfied. And this is what the whole world is doing always. This is what we are all prone to do. A.W. Pink writes this, Whether he articulates it or not, the natural man the world over is crying, I thirst. And over all the cisterns of this world's providing is written in letters of ineffaceable truth. Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. Whatever you're drinking, it's not working. No matter how much physical water I drink, I will at some point always need more. My thirst can be sated only temporarily. I will always need more water. I thirst again and again and again. And no matter how much spiritual water you drink, and apart from Christ, whatever water you think you are drinking to satisfy your soul, you will at some point always need more. Your thirst can be sated only temporarily. You will need more water. You will thirst again and again and again. But Jesus says to you, as he does to her in verse 10, if only you knew, if only you knew the gift of God and who it is that is calling to you. If you really knew, you would ask. If you knew who he was and what he offered and actually believed him, you would realize the utter foolishness of trying to satisfy yourself with anything apart from him. Do you know the gift of God? Did you catch the repetition as we were reading this in these verses? Did you see the word that was repeated again and again and again? I think it's kind of neat. It's actually the word, it's the word give in this text. The word give dominates verses 7 through 15. Plus there's one gift as well, which is just the noun of the same word, give. So eight times total in these few short verses we have give, 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 gift. We looked at this verb in great detail back in John 3.16. Again, go try that again. I, I discussed how we just get that verse entirely wrong. But if we understood the giving of God, a major theme in John's gospel. We thought John's all about love. Remember, John uses the verb love about 40 times. He uses the word give 74 times. If we understood the nature of the giving of a sovereign God, we wouldn't get John 3.16 wrong. 
And again, I argued in great detail, looking at all these different verses, that John highlights continually the efficacy of God's giving. When God gives, God does. God always accomplishes what he intends in his giving. And if you knew the gift of God, which is what? What is that gift? John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way that he gave. Same word. He gave his only son. Jesus is the gift of God. Jesus is what God gives. And in giving us his very son, God is giving us his very self. God is the gift. The thing that you get is not forgiveness of sins. The thing that you get is God. And forgiveness of sins comes along with that. It's so subtle, but it can be very dangerous. We are so prone to focus on the benefits and the things that we get and completely actually miss the main thing. Jesus is the gospel. He's what we get. The best being, the perfect person, absolute goodness and beauty gifted to you. Again, we all know that life is relationship, right? Our life is determined in large part by our relationships. This is relationship with the one who is himself life and whose presence, Psalm 16, there is fullness of joy at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this is why we obnoxiously emphasize covenant here. A covenant is about communion. It is about God with us. Remember the covenant saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's covenant. I am yours and you are mine. That's God himself saying that to us. This is the gift that is offered to us in the gospel. The grace of God is the gift of God himself to us. Not anything that you get from him. It's about getting him. And so, if you knew that gift, you would ask him for what he can give you. Yeah, which is what, again, even more specifically, we'll look at verse 14. One more time. Whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And what is the living water? And as we've seen, just generally, we could say it's, it's God himself. But more specifically, how do we get God? How does what is outside of us come within us, to us? It's the Spirit. Look ahead at John chapter 7. Just look a few chapters ahead. Look at John 7, verses 37 through 39. In John 7, verse 37, Jesus says this. Same metaphor. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. We're talking about the Spirit, and we're talking about what He gives. Eternal life, soul-satisfying, heart-healing, eternity-securing life. You see, this is what it is all about. This is the point and purpose of all of the teaching, all of the doctrine and theology we give you. This is why we labor to preach long, expositional sermons week after week. This is why we work through books in Bible study week after week, why we are working through and recommending that the church adopt the 1689, because John 17, 3, eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. It is because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and we have come to know that blessing is found in taking refuge 
in him. It is because we believe that the only hope for the world and the only hope for your soul is Jesus Christ. Because this is how you were made. This is what you were made for. The world is thirsty. You are thirsty. And the soul's deepest thirst is for God himself. The one who made us for himself. The one who knows that he is the best being, the perfect person, and thus the only one that can fully satisfy us. You cannot and you will not ever be truly satisfied apart from him. You can be as successful as possible. You can get everything that you think. Whatever that thing is that you have in your mind, so when I get that thing, it'll be all right and I'll be good. I tell you, if you get that thing apart from Christ, you will not be satisfied. So look at Hollywood. Right, look at what are, is happening to our culture as we become the wealth, continue to be the wealthiest, most comfortable. We've been reading Christian biographies that Lydia graciously gave us over our trip. And just the contrast of what the Christian life looks like now compared to what it looked like then and our complaining about our things now versus what they were going through then. It's, it's amazing and it's humbling and it's somewhat convicting. <laughs> Uh, you think that you have to have these things to be satisfied and you're pursuing those things, this text is telling you it will not satisfy you. And when you are unsatisfied, it is only because you are so prone to look for life apart from him, the one who is life. That's the only thing. That's what happens when I take my eyes off of him, when I am experiencing dissatisfaction. It can only be because I am not focusing on him and not remembering that he is life. And so today, all I want to do, my first Sunday back, is, is commend to you Christ. I want to encourage you and challenge you to seek and find your satisfaction only in Christ. Your application is to examine yourself, honestly. Examine your heart. What is it that really and truly brings you satisfaction and joy? Right, what are you really uh, pursuing and living for? What do you long and thirst for? Honestly, can you say that it's Christ? Listen to how David speaks of God and of his desire for God. Psalm 42, right? You know it. But man, listen to the language and the metaphors he employs. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Jesus has to have that in mind here in John 4 as he uses this metaphor. Psalm 36, 9, which he read at the beginning. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Psalm 23, it's the Lord as my shepherd, which leads me to not want or to lack because he leads me beside still waters. He and being with him in his presence is what restores my soul. Again, does that resonate with you? Right? Do, you do you have some taste or experience of that? Again, however small or, or imperfect. That's what I most want. For you. Again, that's all that I or Mike have to offer you. It's, it's Christ and Christ alone. Right? Do you have him? Right? Do you know him? Right? Do you love him and, and delight in him and enjoy him? How can you tell? Well, this is what we're going to do for the next two weeks. I did not recover from my obsession with alliteration over sabbatical. So while I was reading this chapter again and again and again, I couldn't get the words out of my head. Water, worship, witness. That's what we're going to do. For the next three weeks. That's the progression of 4, 1 through 45. Water, worship, witness. 
Today is the water, Jesus himself who is life. And so I want to walk through the rest of this story for two more weeks. And I want to see and argue that a true saving encounter with Jesus, the living water, results in eternal life, which always results in worship. You'll see that in verse 24. Well, what is that? What really is worship? Come back next week. And then that worship will always inevitably result in witness. Or Jesus is going to speak in terms of of work. He's going to talk about his work as witness. And we'll see that in verse 34. But that's going to be our three-week little mini-series as we transition back in John chapter 4. Water, worship, witness. The living water wells up into eternal life, which will overflow into true worship of the God who graciously gives that life through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ in our place for the forgiveness of sins. And one of the most astounding lines in Scripture comes up later in John, and it's very astounding in light of what we're looking at here. We've seen the theme of water. We've seen that Jesus is life. He is the water of life. But in a few short chapters, right, John 19, 28, Jesus, the water of life, will hang naked on a cross and will cry out, I thirst. Ah, it's just almost unimaginable. Why? So that you would never have to thirst again. That's, that's the gospel. It's the gracious gift of Jesus Christ. He took the thirst uh, and he fulfilled and satisfied all that you owed um, so that you would never thirst again. And so he gives and offers that life that is found in him as he lives in our place, dies in our place, and rises again. And knowing him, and all of this goodness and grace in contrast to your great sinfulness and wickedness will overflow into your gladly worshiping him. And we're going to see what that is next week. And knowing him and worshiping him will then overflow into witnessing to others about him. That's where we're headed. Water, worship, witness. But it has to start here. Weeks two and three will not happen without week one. Whoever drinks of the water that he gives eternal life. Do you know what that means? But what does it mean to drink? Well, it's, it's faith. Remember the gives. It's a gift. He gives it, receive it, believe it, and live. Seek your satisfaction only in him. My second to last Sunday here, I left you with John Newton. You've forgotten it. I love it so much that I'm giving it to you again because you don't even remember. Here's what John Newton writes in one of my favorite letters of his. This is what I want for you as, a pa as your pastor now that I'm back. I only want you to know and delight in Christ, and to be glad in him, because he's so good. God was showing me over sabbatical. Again, one of the things, he's just show, I am so grumpy. I really am. I, I hate it. I've been grumpy my whole life. Um, and I spent some time around some very grumpy Christians. Um, and I was just made aware of how prone I am to it, and just of how accepting we are of constant complaint and grumbling and dissatisfaction. I'm, I'm done with it. Right, don't complain to me. I'm going to call you out immediately. I, I, I'm done with the grumbling. I'm done with complaining. I want to be glad in Jesus. I want you to be glad in Jesus. And what we're seeing here is no matter what your circumstances are, yeah, easy for you to see, 12 weeks of sabbatical. Yeah, I know. Okay, sure. Uh, but no matter what your circumstances are, no matter how bad they are, if this is true, then you can be glad in Jesus. We can say to Lydia over and over, we talk about over and over again, what she's experiencing as miserable and awful as it is. Paul says it's light and momentary. He doesn't minimize what she's experiencing. He's comparing it to eternity. 
I guess the thing that you're frustrated about is it's so dumb and it doesn't matter. The things that I'm grumpy about, my, the 10 minutes I lost in traffic, is so dumb. I want to be glad in Jesus. And I want you to be glad in Jesus. I want you to know the one who is life and who gives his spirit to you, who makes you like him, and who produces that spirit in you. Is this what characterizes you? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. I'm going to annoy you and overwhelm you with gospel-infused positivity. And I'm going to point you to these things that God produces in his people. Gladness because of his grace. That's what God's grace does. He's making us like him, and he's the best. So I leave you with John Newton. I said that a long time ago. Uh, here's, Here's what I want for you, and I'm done. Newton writes, How often have I longed to be an instrument of establishing you in the peace and hope of the gospel? But I have only one way of attempting that, by telling you over and over and over of the power and grace of Jesus. You want nothing to make you happy, but to have the eyes of your understanding more fixed upon the Redeemer and more enlightened by the Holy Spirit to behold his glory. Oh, he is a suitable Savior. He has power authority, and compassion to save to the uttermost. He has given his word of promise to engage our confidence, and he is able and faithful to make good the expectations and desires he has raised in us. Put your trust in him. Oh, church, he is a suitable savior. And there is such satisfaction to be found in such a suitable savior. Put your trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, your word is infinitely better than my words. Father, the best thing that I have uttered today have been uh, your words. And so I pray that you would make those the center and that you would make those uh, the focus. Father, we are so very thankful for how good you have been to us. Father, you have given us life when we chose death. You have sought us when we sought death. And so, Father, we thank you. Show us the glory of Jesus Christ. Capture our hearts with him. Convince us that he is life. Teach us and show us what it means to actually love him and to live for him and to delight in him. Father, we want to truly long for him and to believe that life is found only in him. So help me to do that. Help my church family to do that. Help Mike and I and the the other teachers of this church to joyfully and effectively um, convey these truths as we um, teach. I'm so thankful that I have the the privilege and the opportunity to do that here in this place. Um, Father, you are so gracious and good. Um, So we thank you for that. Um, We ask that you would work, and we ask that you would draw us to Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.